Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ordinary People. I'm joined again by Neil and Paul. Hi, guys. Hi, yeah. Hi, Andrew. And we have a uh, special guest tonight, as always. Um, this is somebody, another, another Rich Hill man, and I'm going to let Neil tell you a bit more about him. Good stuff. Thanks, Andrew. It, honestly, it's such a such a privilege for me to be able to, to chat with Peter Cardwell tonight. And uh, Peter is a, is a familiar face. Um, he's maybe moved away a wee bit from Rachel over the last number of years, but we still. Uh, I'm I'm very territorial, so I like to still call them our own. And so um, it gives me great joy to be able to introduce Peter uh, tonight. And uh, so we're going to have a bit of a conversation. Um, but Peter. Thanks again for doing this. And just in case there's somebody that doesn't know you around Rich Hill that doesn't recognise your face, why don't you introduce yourself uh, to us, please? Well, thanks very much, Neil. And thanks, Paul and Andrew, as well. Uh, it's great to be able to do this podcast. And thank you very much for inviting me on. I uh, grew up in Rich Hill. I was uh, first three and a half years of my life were in Castle Avenue. And then we moved to Richmond Heights. And my parents still live there. And in fact, I'm just back. I live in London now. Uh, but Richel is always home, and I've actually just been with my parents for the past seven weeks or so since Christmas. Um, just uh, got back to London a few days ago, but uh, really, I sort of grew up in, in the area, went to Clowna and Bordeaux College, and then I went off to university uh, in uh, in England and then became a journalist, but I was did quite a lot of journalism, including for the Bordeaux Times and Newsletter and the Irish News and Belfast Telegraph and various other papers uh, when I was growing up, and as a professional journalist. And then um, I worked as a broadcast journalist for 10 years on lots of different programs, um, including Newsnight and Sky News. And uh, I was on UTV Live for two years as a reporter as well. Uh, and then I went into politics. I worked for the uh, Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, James Brogenshire, for about a year and a half. And then I worked for various other people, various other politicians for another, another sort of two years or so uh, before being unceremoniously sacked, uh, as, as so many people are from government, about a year ago. And since then, I've been doing various kind of bits of consultancy uh, and uh, media stuff and actually wrote a book as well, which I know we're going to talk about at some stage. Um, so that's, that's the, that's the potted history really. Thanks Peter. I did actually didn't realize that, that, that you grew up for your first three and a half years in Castle Avenue. So all this, yeah, indeed. all this time I was round the corner. I grew up, uh, my first 12 years in Castle Drive. No, Castle Garden, sorry. Castle Garden. Castle Garden. Yeah. Um, well, your mum, your mum minded me for a very short oh, really? period. Um, my, my abiding memory of that, it was only, I think my, um, usual childhood was off or something. It was only for about six weeks or something. And my abiding memory was I had like a little key ring that had little bits that came out of it uh -huh. um, every day when we came home from school, you would take the wee bits out of the key ring and throw them at me. What? Um, and just for, just for fun, <laughs> basically. Um, so, uh, and, then, and then I lost a bit of them and I was really annoyed. So, um, yeah, I'll be bitter to the grave. I hope, that's not why, I hope that's not why you left Castle Avenue. <laughs> that's exactly the reason. No. So, we're a bit, we're a bit, a bit older, but so sorry, sorry, bring that up. <laughs> That's I'm, sure, I'm sure that bit of the, the key ring probably costs um, probably about five or ten p. So add wow. twenty five years of interest, and you know we'll just can't, we'll call it. A I can't thing. believe that story didn't make it into the book. <laughs> um, yeah, it was as a yeah. Well, we could just go straight into talking about the book because I I have it sitting here on my on my bookshelf, and um, and honestly, like I I can't speak any highlier of this book. If I tried, it was such a it was such a fascinating read and. 
And uh, I love those moments. I love, because I love being from Rich Hill, every time you mentioned Rich Hill, it was just something to me. It was just automatically, yes, that's still, uh, still proud to be from Rich Hill. Um, so that, I suppose we, uh, some things in common, we grew up in, uh, grew up in Rich Hill, didn't realise we were as close, um, didn't realise how horrible I was to you. Uh, <laughs> you were not Please forgive me. You were having a joke. Um, went to Hardy, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. Hardy. and then and then clown, as you say, and then Portland College, oh. and then obviously our lives went uh, vastly different different directions. Um, but just just as you just could you mention just a wee bit about Portland College before we keep going that there's those um, those years that you spent spent there. Yeah, um, I was. I mean, I was okay academically. It wasn't wasn't sort of terrible academically, but. Um, it was really at A level at Portland College that I, I, I sort of, it's funny, lots of politicians say over the years, you know, we've got to broaden the curriculum, we're going to make sure people do maths and science and all that kind of stuff and maybe a language at A level. And I was completely against all that. I wanted to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow. And I, I managed to get four subjects at A level that were all essay based. And uh, I, I just, it was just all about writing essays. So I did uh, English, history, uh, politics and drama. And uh, I, I just loved all of them and had really, really good teachers. And um, they actually introduced politics when I, I was the first year to do it at Portland College. And the head of politics, Sean Dunlop, is actually in the book. And uh, it was really nice, actually, because I sort of stayed in touch a little bit with him through the years. I've been in a couple of times, talked to the class and things. But what was really good was I managed to bring, he had a, a group of students over in London when I was uh did the job of a special advisor to the justice secretary so i was working with the justice secretary a guy called robert buckland and what was really nice is we had the the class into to robert's office he was away and we'd all sat around and had had a cup of tea and a diet coke and um i managed to break protocol and get uh sean who's a bit of a character as anybody you know will tell you uh and he actually got the uh the wig the lord chancellor's wig and, and put it on so on and the, they're obviously snapping away and so on so uh Robert Robert wouldn't have known about that until it was in the book. Uh, so <laughs> really? terrible, terrible breach of protocol, but uh, nonetheless, it was funny. And of course, he just he just lent into it, uh, and it was it was good fun. Brilliant. It was it was another one of those moments in the book that I again reading Sean Dunlop's name. Still, there's still part of me that wants to call him Mister Dunlop, but yeah, no, <laughs> Sean so Dunlop. But Sean, he did. Uh, he was our rugby. He was our rugby coach. Um, I think pretty much the whole time I was at Portland College, and uh, I was so fond of him. He was a really good yeah, teacher. Was, really good. Just, you just you didn't even realize you were learning with him. I mean, you just kind of it was just like a conversation. And what he was really good at, we had people of really sorry. I don't I don't mean to be arrogant here, but there were people with like really quite mixed ability in our A level classes. Some people who really struggled to 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 kind of grasp things and he was just so good with all of us like whether you whether you got it immediately or whether you didn't get it like he was so patient and, and good and actually i've been really privileged to have a number of really really good teachers another one is is audrey henderson mrs henderson who's obviously originally from 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 rich hill who's uh kept in touch with me through the years and stuff as well and actually asked me to for the hardy annual which is lovely but she's i mean she's got me christmas card every year she read the book Amazing. you know um it's it's funny how you kind of get into adulthood and you, you sort of reconnect with people around yeah. the village as well. Be Mrs. Campbell, Maddie Campbell as well. Every now and again, always stops, always has a chat. You know, there's just just so many good things about about the schools we went to. Yeah, yeah. just when you mentioned some of the, the primary school teachers, uh, Audrey's not there anymore, but I was there as you were 
a good number of years ago. And um, so now my, yes. now my kids have grown up and I, uh, whenever we went back to school, the, my P2 teacher was Mrs. Lonsdale. I don't think that was her, oh, yeah. I don't think that was her name at the time. I don't think she'd been married, but now my, all three of my kids that went through school have all had Mrs. Lonsdale as their, oh, as their primary school teacher, teacher, you know. So I, did, I, did, I did allocation with her actually. And in fact, I was at a reception in uh, House Commons um, on the sort of the terrace where you're looking out on the on the Thames River and you see the London Eye and everything is really really lovely. And a guy came up to me and said, uh, "He's a guy involved with the military. Is her is her brother actually?" And we got a. Oh, he said wow. he just happened to be at that reception. Said, um, "Did you do you remember her?" And of course I did. Uh, she's just a lovely lovely teacher, and uh, we got a got a wee selfie and sent it to her and everything, which is oh, just really nice. Brilliant. Yeah, funny, funny how things work out. Very good, love that. Um, yeah, I actually got, I actually have this sitting beside me. My wife wanted to know why I was rushing out of the sh- out to get the, to the shop at half seven. I wanted to make sure that you knew I had I had read the book and I wanted to prove it by getting uh, the famous Death Coke can. Haven't haven't drank Death Coke in years, but anyway. Well, I can. I I, I see. <laughs> you have one. Well, I see your yeah. mine's slightly taller. I see yours in the raise. Oh right! Oh, oh, you're 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 trying to trying to outdo me. Yeah, no, it's uh, it was my feel. And actually, I wrote the book at home uh, during lockdown. Um, and uh, my dad and my mum were really, really trying to get me to drink less diet coke. But it's just it's my my one vice. I don't I don't drink. I don't smoke. Uh, I don't do illegal drugs. And uh, I'm afraid that's that's all I have really. Um, yeah, so the so then what university, Peter? You went left college, and where did you go? Yeah, I, I went. I went to Oxford University. I actually took a gap year, um, and uh, I was um, yeah. I went, I went to and worked for a newspaper in South Africa for uh, five months, and then sort of travelled for another month after that in uh, just between school and university. And that year, actually, after university, I applied to Oxford and because uh, my levels had come a bit better than I thought they were going to. And then off I went there for three years. So I was really involved with a lot of student journalism there as well. And there's always a real passion. And uh, edited the student newspaper there as well and got involved in various societies and stuff. So it was really, really good fun. It was, it was very intense mm. kind of university experience. A lot of people, you know, um, will sort of see see universities sometimes as, as maybe not you're maybe not the most uh, under under the most pressure but Oxford was really really intense and um, I, I mean I enjoyed it but it was tough it was really tough as well I thought about dropping out at one stage actually in the first year and I remember my mum writing me a lovely letter I mean my parents are brilliant for many reasons but um, one of them is they've just never put any pressure on me and they've never pushed me um, I mean they, they've sort of quietly you know expected me to do my best and stuff as, as parents do but they've never been pushy parents remember my mom writing me a letter saying, you know, I know this is really tough and if you want to drop out, we'll support you and, you know, you could be a bin man or uh, have an Oxford degree and we'll, we'll support you and we'll be proud of you. Um, it's quite much more than education. So I'm glad it didn't drop out, um, but at the same time, it was good to know that, that if I had, it wouldn't have been the biggest deal really and managed to get through, got the 2-1 and everything and uh, and that was that. But no, made some brilliant, I mean, everybody makes really good, good uh, friends at university, but a number of my friends uh, I'm still friends with now. I actually went into journalism as well. So I went off to, to Newsnight. Uh, was my first posting, but a few people, uh, Times, Telegraph, Sunday Times, um, Sky News, a few other places as well. So there's there's a good good bunch, and people are really 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 into journalism there. So, uh, like again, from reading the book, there's so so many highlights, so many stories you could share. Uh, but is there like is there a few highlights? Is there a few standout moments in your 
journalism career that you could that you could share with us? Um, with journalism, I suppose I didn't actually put this in the book, but probably probably my favorite moment was um, Obama was giving his sort of final rally, and what a lot of these uh, obviously they have what they call the stump speech, and all, all the all the all the candidates will will go and and give their stump speech, and he was just giving a stump speech. It wasn't a speech he hadn't given before. Uh, or I haven't heard before, but there's a place called Manassas, uh, which is in Virginia, which is just about an hour, an hour and a half drive away from from Washington. And I, that that year, that sort of autumn of 2008, I was working for BBC Washington, and uh, I sort of gone over on a punt, really. And I, I sort of a friend had sort of um, had promised me a few shifts and things. I was totally freelance the whole time. But what had happened was there's so many people at BBC Washington when there's an election on. Who, who go have to go all over America and cover all sorts of things. So there's lots of kind of backfill opportunities. So I mean, I was only really out of journalism college, um, and and it was just really good to to, to work on it. But um, you know, I remember this rally was um, it was in this place, Manassas in Virginia. It was his last speech before uh, the election day in 2008, when when he was you know obviously became president. And it was pretty clear he was going to become president at that stage, although no one really believed it until it happened. And they have these. Um, they have these things uh, called kind of risers, just like a big platform where all the, the cameramen go with their the cameras and uh, they can get a good shot. And it was in a, a, a really, really still cold night in November. And it was uh, in, a, in a sort of football football stadium, American football stadium. And uh, there just these big lights that said vote for change. And it was just totally, totally full. And we were sort of sitting on this, on this riser watching, I mean, about 200 yards from Obama giving this final speech. And I'm sitting beside Jeremy Paxman uh, when when he was he was going to speech, I just thought I can't believe people are paying me to do this. Like this is just, this is just crazy. Um, and I just remember that just that I just remember there was total silence. It was just total silence when it came through. It was, it was midnight Washington time when it became absolutely clear that Obama was definitely going to win uh, the following day. And I just remember that, that just how, how how silent it was and how there were there were some people who were very emotional actually who'd um, you know come maybe Americans as well who'd come through. A long period of time, but you know, I, I had a brilliant time as journalist. Did all sorts of really interesting things and interviewed all sorts of interesting people. There's, there's a, I only ever did one red carpet. I was never particularly good at sort of you know showbiz celebrity stuff or whatever. But I did one uh, thing with red carpet. And I actually managed to interview Kate Blanchett, uh, which was quite funny, and uh, that was that was quite a quite a funny funny moment. But no, I mean, I worked with Dimbleby, worked with with Piers Morgan, worked with. Um, with Jeremy Paxson and stuff, and and it, it was a really really interesting ten years, and then I, I I got the opportunity to go into politics, which was which was great. But um, I would say actually the the contrast in a journalist's life are, are probably the highlight as well. I mean, I remember doing uh, an interview with someone um, who it, 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 I just remember it was it was the, it was the dirtiest house I've ever been in. Um, I was I, I was doing a radio interview, and usually I would record for ten or fifteen minutes to do a sort of three minute report. Um, and I remember I. I I looked at the recording and I recorded for six minutes and I just thought, right, I'm just getting out of here. I mean, it's got really, it was just a really dirty house and the, the subject matter was, was, was very, very difficult. And um, was a child who died in care. Um, and then, um, and then I went directly from there to, um, to this absolutely huge house in, um, in on the North coast and um, just outside Helens Bay for a reception with a guy who was over from America. There was a bishop there. There were all sorts of, Quotable notables, Lord Mayor of Belfast was there and stuff, and it was all sort of canapes and uh, quaffing wine and champagne and all the rest of it. And I just sort of thought, like, I've literally gone from one extreme to the other. And the the, the trick is to try to um, treat people exactly the same, um, no matter which situation you're in, really. 
Um, but no, I was I was very very lucky in journalism. You just you have so many. It's the only job really that you, you have, or one of the very few jobs where you have the excuse to go up to anybody and ask them anything. They don't have to answer ask the question. But um, you know, I got to know quite a lot of politicians through that. Got to know quite a lot of special advisors as well. The job I did, and that was actually the way the way I got into to politics was knowing um, someone who's a special advisor to Theresa May, which was at the Home Office, and then um, then when she this woman in particular, Fiona, Fiona Hill is her name. She went to Downing Street and then I sort of sent off my CV and thought I would hear nothing more about it. And about a week later, I was, go- I was going off to the Northern Ireland office with James Brokenshire. So it was a very, very strange thing. And I think it, it was just a lesson in that, you know, if you're not in, you can't win. You know, what's, what's the worst people can do? You just, you know, they say no or ignore your email. But if you don't send the email, they're not going to say no or ignore it. So um, that, that's sort of, that, that was sort of how that happened. Before we go into the politics, I'd love to... Uh, not, not just for the sake of like clickbait or whatever, but because I get sucked in by Piers Morgan's rantings and ravings, and uh, you're someone that uh, was in and around that environment. Um, what was what was he like to work with, or did you were you up close with? Yeah, I mean, he, he he's very. I've actually known him for quite quite a while because he came to Oxford. Actually, he was sacked from the Mirror. Uh, you'll remember the, oh, the yes. photographs, yeah, obviously. Yeah. And I came to Oxford and actually interviewed him for the student paper. So I knew him a bit through that. And he actually got me a bit of work experience at the Mirror mm-hmm. as well, which is very nice of him. But um, I've sort of, sort of known him. And I have one friend in particular who's a very, very, very good friend of, of his, who's a mutual, mutual friend of mine. But I wouldn't say we're friends or anything, but we certainly know each other. Um, I mean, just very straightforward. Um, I mean, he knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly when he goes off on a rant that people will react to it. Uh, he doesn't mind being unpopular, obviously. Um, and I think there's, there's a real freedom that kind of comes with not caring what people think of you i mean some people will say it's a bad thing but the most successful people in television are not the kind of insecure ones who read every tweet and you know worry about what everybody thinks about them the people who, who genuinely don't care um, and i would say paxman and, and, and Piers morgan were sort of two of those people who just who just don't care i mean whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is another is another matter um but Piers morgan he knows how to make compelling television he knows how to have an opinion on almost everything and I think he's a very sort of charismatic figure who, you know, we're talking about now, um, whereas there are many other broadcasters I've worked with who just sort of glaze over you sort of thing. And it's interesting as well when you kind of come out of broadcasting and you realize how little impact most broadcasting makes. Um, a lot of people watch the news and it'll be in their mind for a very short period of time or they'll watch a program or, or whatever. It doesn't really stay with them. Whereas what I think Pierce does is a lot of the things he says and does stay with people, whether they agree with them or not. Um, and actually, if you can, you know, part of my job as a reporter in Good Morning Britain for, for two years, and part of my job was to kind of explain what's going on in Syria to people who don't know where Syria is um, or, or, or know, know that its capital is Damascus. And part of my um, job was to sort of have 45 seconds or a minute to explain that. But actually, maybe that's more worthwhile than, you know, the six minute, seven minute reported news night to people who kind of know it all already. So it's a, it's a big kind of ethical question, I suppose, about, about journalism as well. And so what about, what was that transition that how, why or how did that come about, that sort of shift from journalism to the politics? I, I'd always had a really, really cynical view of politicians. Um, there were some politicians I did a bit of work experience with. Danny Kennedy, when I was 18, a uh, good, really good local representative, really good guy, a really nice guy. I'm still friends with this day, actually. And um, I saw up close that just the, the really difficult job that every local politician does, every politician in general, all the sacrifices they make, 
all the time away from their family and so on. And, and I sort of, I think when I work, started working for Newsnight in, in sort of in, in Westminster properly covering politics around, around about 10 years ago, I, I properly got a sense of, of what, it, what it meant to be working in politics. And, and I really saw these special advisors and saw what they were up to and um, these kind of ministerial aides who are everything from kind of a bag carrier to an advisor to um, you know, they do, do all sorts of things for, for ministers and they're, they're also party political, so they're a member of the Conservative Party or Labour or whatever. So I saw them in action and I got to know a few of them and I got to respect a number of them as well. And some were better than others, like, like everybody, like any, any profession. Um, you know, some people are good, some people aren't. But um, I suppose really when Theresa May came in, became Prime Minister, I always kind of admired her and thought she was quite a good, good sort of moral person, I suppose. Um, not that I'm saying a particularly moral person, but she is. Um, and uh, I think, and also I knew Fiona Hill. So I think I think a lot of getting into into those kind of roles is often um, having being trusted. Really, it's not it's not necessarily who you know. It's just about being trusted and being kind of vouched for. Because a lot of people could do those jobs, but also it's it's a matter of, of whether you want to. Certainly, working at the Northern Ireland office for a year and a half. I mean, I, I went in 2017. I went between Belfast, London, Dublin, and Brussels. I, I took 85 flights um, during that one year period. So, I mean, it's a lifestyle choice. You know, you, you just, it would be very difficult to do if you had young children. It'd be very difficult to do if you had caring responsibilities. And that's, that's kind of a slight weakness of the system. But uh, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. It was a fascinating job to do and to get the opportunity was, you know, probably once in a lifetime. And then James Brogenshire had resigned because he had lung cancer. And as many people will know, he was diagnosed again with uh, another, um, another uh, tumor. I uh, since had his his whole lung removed, uh, his whole right lung. So he only has one lung now, but um, he's recovering well and doing ten thousand steps a day on his on his uh, treadmill. And um, yeah, we keep we keep in really good touch. Um, I mean, there's certain. I, I work for four politicians. Some of them, you know, I got on with all of them, and, and with many people you work work with, obviously, you can have a good relationship with them. But at the end of the day, you're an employee. Uh, whereas with James, you know, we're, we're, we're proper mates. Um, I'd say he's kind of one of my one of my top ten people in the whole world, actually. And he was there for me. Um, I, as I sort of say in the book a little bit, but uh, you know, will be open about. I, I've had sort of mental health problems over the years, and he stuck by me through all that. You know, maybe time off or whatever. Whereas, um, you know, I've been pretty loyal to him as well. So it is it is quite funny, Neil. You like this actually. Um, a friend of mine um, I was had read the book beforehand a friend in the, in the acknowledgements was had read the book beforehand and I said oh I'm a bit worried about this but I think maybe James won't like it uh, this particular section um, my friend just went Peter you know James comes out of the book better than God comes out of the Bible <laughs> 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 oh, <laughs> so really yeah I, I actually really did I loved that like how you spoke about James and that, even that dynamic with his wife and all, I just thought that was really, just thought it was really good. Oh, she's, she's, she's great. Because I think that's what can, actually, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying, I, I'm actually moving to uh, a new flat. I've got a, got a new flat um, in London, just, just bought it, and I'm giving them giving them a virtual tour tomorrow. We're doing a video oh, call. Very good. Showing, so Kathy, his wife, is very, very keen to, to ask my opinion on things I'll know nothing about, like, like furnishings and, you know, colours and things. I feel like I should make a joke relevant to the book. Like, how many ovens have you got in your... Yeah, in your don't worry, that one's been made. That one's been made. But I make the point about that because I think we can so easily uh, dehumanise politicians. And so I think how you spoke of some of your former employees or employers, uh, particularly 
James Brokenshire and his wife was it really felt like it was humanizing them, which I really appreciated. Well, that, 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 that's something that I really like to do a bit more of, actually, and, and I sort of thought of as well. Um, I'd really like to do something like maybe a documentary or a radio thing, or, or I don't think there's necessarily a book in it, but something about the impact that um, politics has on families. Um, and I think I think there's probably there's probably a lot of crossover to really any public facing role, maybe even your own Neil, where people kind of you know you're you're sort of slightly public property. You can't go and buy a pint of milk without somebody asking you something, asking you to do something. Um, with politicians as well, it's just the time you know the time that you're away, the things you'll miss, uh, the things you'll say you'll go and do, and then suddenly you've got to you've got to go to Belfast or into Westminster or whatever to do. So um, I think it's just a very very tough existence and um, I think a lot of kids of politicians get bullied uh, as well or one thing that I know uh, some some people I've worked for you know the kids often get there's a big controversial topic it's Brexit or something like that and even teachers and things will say to the kids in school like what does your dad or mom think about this and like, oh, that's not very fair you know um so I think there's and people aren't necessarily being unkind or anything you know they're not really trying to be but I just think there, there's quite a lot in that um and I'd be interested in kind of exploring that a bit more um but no, no, they're, they're, they're great people. And actually, another boss of mine, Robert Buckland, who I mentioned earlier, the Justice Secretary, actually lived in his house for two weeks and drove his wife's car during the election. And um, Sean wouldn't mind me saying, Sean Buckland wouldn't mind me saying she's, she's a very terrifying uh, person. And uh, I, I, knew, I knew if I pranked that car, my life wouldn't be worth living. And uh, James actually said, I told James, James Brokenshire knew, knows the Bucklands quite well. And I said, you know, I'm really worried about this car. And James just said, like, Peter, don't worry about it. Like, if you prank that car, you'll just be dead. You know, she's <laughs> having and that, that's it. You know, there's, there's, there's going to be, there's no way out of it. So don't worry about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> Happy campaigning. <laughs> so, so there's obviously, again, lots of interesting stories about um, all the different places, all the different uh, departments that you worked in. Um, maybe just because we're a bit closer to home, is there any stories that you could tell us? Any, again, any highlights, any moments to remember from your time in the, in the Northern Ireland office when you were working with James as Secretary of State? Yeah, I mean, lots. I mean, it, it was, it's kind of weird. It was sort of a slightly weird um, job because you're often in negotiations with um, people. You know, I'd grown up watching on TV. Um, I mean, Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness, I got to know sort of relatively well. It was quite weird because I came into uh, came into a room once, and Martin McGuinness sort of said, "Oh, Peter, how are you? How's everybody in Rich Hill?" And I said, "Oh, Martin McGuinness knows where I live." And they went, "Martin McGuinness knows where I live." So it was uh, it was it was kind of weird, but um, it's very very strange kind of process. And also, um, you know, it's less about kind of what's said in, in the room than, than than sometimes out of it as well. But uh, no, it was uh, the Northern Ireland office is just absolutely fascinating and, and really really. Incredible privilege, actually. One one thing I really loved doing it was really good fun. Um, was going to uh, the uh, McKenna Cup final in uh, in Newry, the the Gaelic um, final that James was the first Dublin state to ever go to to a Gaelic football match um, in in Northern Ireland. And uh, we were criticised for it because he, he arrived late and didn't stand for the Irish national anthem and all that kind of stuff. But that didn't really matter. I mean, what was what I really took from that was just the kindness and hospitality of people who were just really, really lovely. And they printed, they'd done, um, like they engraved a little notepad and everything for them. They'd given, given them like so many, so many nice things. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of weird as well. Like I got to stay in Hillsborough Castle and things like that. Um, there's in the, in the sort of uh, apartments there and things. And 
um, it was it was kind of kind of weird uh, with that met Prince Harry things like that um, and uh, yeah I just got to know kind of um, Michelle O'Neill a bit Arlene Foster a bit um, people like that and all the sort of various various crises that that were there um, got to plan an RAF uh, flight which is which is quite weird where they're sort of bringing you gen genotonics and things and canopies and stuff all all very people in their uniforms and that was that was kind of weird as well. Um, um, once, I mean, you, you almost always took um, kind of Aer Lingus or, or, or British Airways flights and actually got to know one of the Aer Lingus um, flight attendants, stewardesses, I'm not quite sure what the correct term is, but um, to the extent that now if I'm getting on an Aer Lingus flight, I can send her a message on Facebook and she kind of makes sure I'm in the in the exit row and stuff, which is really, really nice. She occasionally gives me a free cup of tea and stuff, but um, she, she's a lovely, lovely person. Um, as well, but no, there's, there's just also the Northern Ireland office is, you know, it's full of people who've been around for a long time um, who remember way, way back to even sometimes people like Peter Brook and Patrick Mayhew and, and, you know, some of the some of the sort of Northern Ireland secretaries from, from a long time ago. And I remember being told about Sean Woodward, the Northern Ireland secretary, um, they used to have a little a little private plane uh, when security was, was the security situation was as good. They had a private plane that they, they flew between Belfast and London. Uh, but obviously, it all had to be, you know, uh, all had to be um, signed off, and all had to be uh, properly within the rules and everything. But Sean Woodward is um, is a millionaire, multi-millionaire. He's married into the, the this or was married, now divorced, into the Sainsbury's family. And uh, he was told, you know, I'm terribly sorry, Secretary of State, this this flight to Belfast isn't justified uh, within the rules. And he said, oh, how much does it cost? And they said, oh, you know, twelve thousand pounds. Whatever. He just took out the checkbook, wrote the check. Have them a check, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so it's a, it's a you, hear, you hear kind of funny stories like that as well. I don't know if it's hard to articulate this, but like, is, was there did you find a huge difference being in England so long and coming back into Northern Ireland politics? Is it like was it not? Yeah, was it, it frustrating or was it like? Oh yeah, de definitely frustrating, and I think that it's sometimes hard to explain. You know, James was very good and, and picked things up really, really quickly. And um, I think I only ever really explained like one thing to him. Well, a couple of things to him. One was actually going about going to like Gaelic match. I said, like, if you stand for the national anthem, you'll be criticized. If you arrive late for the national anthem, you'll be criticized. So you may as well just choose one and let's do it, basically. And like, there's, there's no way out of this. Um, and the other thing was I explained to him what a, what a garden center unionist was, uh, which is someone who's so middle class, they're more likely to be going to doing something middle class like going to a garden centre than, you know, voting for the Ulster Unionist Party or, you know, more moderate moderate unionists. So um, there's kind of people that would have voted for David Trimble who now don't vote for Ulster Unionists anymore. So I think I think I explained a couple of things like that, but he picked things up really quickly. But no, the, the, the sort of pettiness of, of arguments and, you know, um, stuff about flags and things like that, like he just, he just took it in his stride yeah. and it was very, very good and so on. But it was, you know, just being in... You go as well from the sublime to the ridiculous. I mean, you're maybe in a, in a meeting at number 10 about something really important, and then, then you fly to Belfast and somebody um, sort of just decides, um, you know, that there's some controversy about you know, a politician buying shoes, or, you know, somebody will go with someone boycotting something because some other politician's there or something. You just sort of think it is, it, it does, a lot of it does seem very, very petty. Um, but Sometimes people have their reasons, and sometimes people feel they have to stand up for things that you know maybe their electorate are putting pressure on them. Maybe they're getting hundreds of phone calls about something, and you don't understand the pressure they're in, and then they speak out about something. And you think, "Oh, catch yourself on." So, 
sometimes sometimes the context is important as well. But no, definitely, I, I've always tried to, to stay in touch with Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland politics and people within it. And I think there are a number of people who come to England who um, lose their accent, uh, which is something I've really tried not to do. Live, lived in America and <laughs> lived in England, but really tried not to lose my accent. And uh, that's very important to me because there, there's some people who do, and I find that very frustrating. But uh, no, there's it, it, it is it is strange. Stormont is a strange place, um, and there are some there are some strange people there. But it, it's the same in every party. Like every party is a coalition of, of all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life, and different people are in it for different reasons. And one thing James really taught me actually was the the, the importance of volunteers and the importance of you know there there's a small bunch of people who are professional politicians and make their living out of politics, but the majority of people who are involved in politics are going out in a wet Saturday afternoon to post leaflets through a door and they're they're the ones who you need to really appreciate and, and not be not be snobby about as, as some people are. Um, so that was another yet another lesson the great man taught me. Yeah I think just from the accent thing, I think listen to Graham McDowell or Dole talk to you know Graham the golfer. Listen to his accent sometimes I'd be like I would do anything in my power to make sure that I never lost my accent. <laughs> It is. It is kind of weird. Um, the ones that I've not few people who I went to university with, not name any names, but they're somewhere in the middle of. They're somewhere in the middle of the Irish Sea, and they sort of talk about like that. And just like, please stop talking, please. Uh, but I, I don't know. If, I don't know if Nicky will. Nicky Williamson will listen to this, but you know Nicky. Yeah. So Nicky went to. Um, Nicky went to New York for just under three months. And he came back home, and for at least three or four months after that, he had this bizarre twang. <laughs> and like we we took the mick out of him. And uh, as you will be able to tell now, eighteen or so years later, we're still taking the mick out of him. <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. But no, it's it's all down to how how you pronounce par. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and uh, it is funny because sometimes you find yourself. You say words to people and some say, what are you saying? And then you find yourself saying, no, it's power. And it's like, no, it's not a power. So far, sharper. Oh, <laughs> well, very good. One of the parts, Peter, that I, again, I'm sort of making this, I'm sort of quoting from your book here. And if you have anything, you could speak in this. Because I just, whether it was from your perspective as a journalist or in the world of politics, I, I was challenged by it even just in the world of church. Because it, you talked about this this idea of understanding everyone's perspectives, and I think it was I don't know if I'm quoting this exactly, but I think you said something along the lines of it's weird when people feel they cannot debate, discuss, and drink with those that we disagree with, and um, I just I, I just I just found myself stopping in the middle of the book and like what would it be like? I just especially in Northern Ireland, especially in some of the those places that we find ourselves in, like why can we not do that better? Like why can we not? It is weird that we cannot debate, discuss, and have a drink with people that we disagree with. Well, it's it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I was actually inspired by. I'm not religious, religious at all. I'm completely agnostic. I'm afraid, um, but I was actually inspired by there was a. I think it was a Presbyterian or Methodist moderator a couple of years ago. I can't remember exactly, but it was definitely a moderator who went to the Sinn Fein conference, the Ardesh, as they call it, and said. Um, I think it's something along those lines, actually. And he said, um, buy a cup of tea for someone you disagree with. And I remember uh, I actually bumped into Martina Anderson in an airport lounge and a Sinn Féin politician who I probably couldn't disagree with more. I don't think there's, there's a living person I could disagree with more uh, in terms of Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, she's a very, very 
friendly person and we were about to get the flight and I said um she was with a few of her uh few of her or maybe workers or or um whatever and I said I remember watching your Ardesh on the on the telly and this guy this minister saying buy a cup of tea for somebody who disagrees so you know sometime can I buy you a cup of tea and we'll have a chat and I said yeah yeah no problem we, we haven't done it yet but it was quite funny actually the, the guys who were with her said, oh, I remember that guy who said that, yeah, yeah. So, um, no, it's, it's I, I think as well, I mean, a lot of people want to be really, really strong in their opinions. And I went into a lot of politics not really knowing what I thought. And I still don't know what I think about a number of things. I'm much stronger now than I used to be. But I think because of journalism, for 10 years, it was my job not to have an opinion. And then for three and a half years, it was my job to have an opinion on everything until civil service, this is what I think, this is what the Secretary of State thinks. And all the rest of it. Um, I think there are a lot of people who very happily get into people they respect, or a newspaper they respect, or news sources they respect for whatever reason, um, and then kind of parrot those opinions. And I always say that you know, if you, if you read the Guardian every day, read the Daily Telegraph for a week. You know, if you watch uh, BBC News for for um, uh, every night, watch Telefor News every night for a week, and see see how it goes, or listen to a bit of talk radio or LBC or whatever, and just Work out not just what you think, but why you think it. Um, and, and being challenged in your views, there's nothing wrong with being challenged in your views, and it actually can make. I mean, you. I'm sure you know a lot about this, Neil. There's, you know, Northern Ireland is a much less religious um, society than it was when we were growing up. Um, and although I would argue um, it's probably more Christian society now, um, in that there, there's there's so many people who are who are brilliant Christian witnesses, and that's one that's one of the reasons I'm agnostic. I've always always admired people like my mother actually a lot of her friends are going to chill here incredibly have this incredible christian witness but you know why do you believe what you believe well a lot of people during your life and people you grew up with will probably have said to you oh that's a load of nonsense or why would you believe that or you know you're just saying that because of your family yeah. or you know whatever yeah. and actually you've got to work it out why you believe what you believe whether that's a political belief or a religious belief or, or, or whatever and I think knowing what you don't know and knowing how much more, you know, you can you can learn loads of things, you can read loads of books, but there's always more to learn and more to do and, and not kind of ruling out the fact that you can change your opinion and there's nothing wrong with changing your opinion. There's nothing wrong with being convinced. There's nothing wrong in terms of hearing the counterfactual or hearing what other people would say because then you're either convinced or you realise more strongly why you believe what you believe. And I just, I just feel very, very strongly about that and I think we need to let in lots more opinions than the ones that we we just not and, and have as you say a much more civil conversation about um all sorts of issues and, and understand you know politics was really good for me university actually was really good for me as well to get to know a lot of people who believe a lot of things i just really don't believe but i know why i don't believe them yeah. rather than just saying yeah that's brilliant yeah thanks for sharing that Peter. i i suppose that's why we wanted to do this to do something like this is because I just want to know the names and the faces and the issues, like what's going on within people that make up our community. And um, rather than just selecting people to have a conversation and just like entrenching yourself further in your own position or just sticking with your own, like your own echo well, chamber. I can, I can honestly say that growing up in Rich Hill, I don't think I liked it very much. I think I felt it was small and it was, I wanted to go to London and I wanted to to kind of, you know, I don't know, broaden my horizons or whatever I thought at that time. And it's really interesting. There's a guy, Paul Johnson, um, who you might know, uh, goes to Rich Hill Methodist, and I uh, have had this conversation a few times. 
Paul is a really, really successful lawyer and has gone around the world doing all sorts of things. He's a really smart guy, a really nice guy. And he could easily be living in, you know, London or Kent or wherever in some some massive house. The two of us I kind of have the conversation how we both are still drawn to Richel. Mm. There's something Paul's Paul's built there, made his house there, his little mum lives across the road. Um, you know, we can never get away from it. And I think I appreciate it so much more now than when I grew up there because you don't you don't know what you don't know. And the kind of community bonds and there's a there's a very, very um difficult situation that a friend of mine was in um about a year and a half ago and she rang me in the middle of the night to go to her house and, and help her with it. And I went halfway across London and did that, no problem. It was an hour and taxi and so on. And I was just, as I was going there to deal with that horrible situation, I just thought, if this was Rich Hill, there are a hundred people my parents could ring to help them who would be on their doorstep at two o'clock in the morning helping them with stuff. Um, you know, there are so many good things about knowing, you know, Norman and Jennifer and Neville and Super Rally, knowing. Uh, everybody in Cafe Casa and Susan and you know it's just there's just there's something brilliant about that and knowing your neighbours and chatting to people and even just kind of characters around the, around the village like um, you know like Jackie McKay and, and, and Lord Richell himself and Absolutely. all the rest of the people <laughs> and if, you just know the day I think for you and I think there's an amazing sense of community and I've only really because London is so anonymous um, you don't really know your neighbours very well and you know, it's it's a it's a huge place, and um, I think the, the the value of that community and community spirit, and actually the church comes into that to a huge degree, um, in terms of people looking out for one another, checking in on people, and and it's so important at this time as well. I mean, my mom is a big talker. I'm a big talker. My mom's a big talker as well, and she is you know a chain of people, a kind of prayer chain of people she'll ring and chat, you know, um, kind of check in with every every week or two, um, during the COVID time, and I just sort of think. Like how many communities have that? How many, you know, there are loads of people I know. My next door neighbor in London, very old guy, has just gone into a care home, actually. I'm not really sure anybody was ringing him mm. to see if he was okay. I mean, I was trying to pop in every now and again, but it was just, you know, it, there's a real value to, to a close community. Um, and I think I didn't realize that growing up, and I, I realize it now. And, and I, I always I always return to Rachel, yeah. and it's always home. Yeah, I appreciate it. Just I'd seen it on your, I'd seen it somewhere on Facebook recently that you were just there must be that feeling of coming home you're really encouraging people to get out and support Cafe Casa um, which yeah, I thought was, was really good I was a bit worried actually because um, I just it wasn't Susan actually but someone else was saying you know they're just like like many businesses suffering with COVID and so on but I just thought it was really important to kind of go there and I tried, I tried to nip in a few times and, and get a few things I mean obviously if I happened to buy a big bomb you know a big you know biscotti uh, kind of kind of things, and or a fifteen or whatever, you know, just 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 helping my community. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I I, just, I I couldn't go past without saying, like I don't know your dad all that well, um, but it was actually on a walk. It was on a walk with, with Nick McKnight this morning, and I, he was speaking glowingly of your incredibly glowing of your father. But I do know your mum a wee bit better, and I have to say, like in terms of Christian witness around Rich Hill, um, your mum is certainly. Uh, but the top of the list in terms of a Christian witness. Was yeah, it's, it's, it's funny actually. I mean, there, there, there's sort of a group of. Um, it's quite quite interesting actually. There was during the Drum Creek crisis many many years ago. My mum set up a, a on, on a few of her friends. We had a load of people over to our house for prayer meetings during the Drum Creek uh, crisis. Actually, actually from some some uh, people from the from the Catholic Church as well came, and there were about uh, at times I think there were twenty or twenty five people every morning. You know, for a few weeks in our front room. And then I kind of dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. And the, the, the kind of 
end of that is, or that what what it is now, are my mom and three of her friends who, since that time, have met almost every Saturday morning and had a had a prayer meeting. Uh, although I I've been known to call it the gossip meeting, um, but <laughs> but uh, the Saturday girls, as she called them, are just like four really firm firm friends who have been really there for each other through through many many things over the years. And that's that's part of it as well, you know. And I, I think we're we're just very lucky. Um, to Nick as well, I talk about just a, a great guy, um, who I've batted around a number of ideas with over the years. And actually, Paul Ritchie as well. I don't oh yes, Mitchell yeah. uh, Methodist, real intellectual, like a really 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 smart guy. He used to go for walks with as well, and talk about like Lutheranism and all this yeah. kind of stuff. So, um, like it's it's you do have those kind of people as well. So yeah. Um. While we're still while we're still hoping about the conversation on Rich Hill, we can't we can't not uh, speak about the Facebook page that you set up, which I did not realise until I read the book. So uh, we had we had Alan Turbo on the first episode a number of weeks back, just uh, giving us some people even even on this call that did not that did not know that Hillsborough had stolen the gates from us. Um, so do you like, yeah, who, who, with, a Lisbon, with a Lisbon man here, he doesn't even know, <laughs> doesn't even know the criminality his brethren have been involved with. So can you give us? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I wipe your hands off it. Tell it, tell it to the judge. <laughs> can you uh, can you bring people up to speed on that that maybe don't know about it and direct them to your Facebook page and. Give yeah, us some hope you know, that it actually please, can... please, please join my Facebook page, give Rich Hill Castle back its gates. It's funny actually because people are a little bit divided over this. Um it's sort of been a thing that's been around for a long time. And I remember even in school, uh, people saying have told me, you know, they would write letters off to the Prime Minister or the Queen or whatever saying, you know, give us back our gates. And you know, ironically, actually, um the gates obviously were taken in nineteen thirty six and uh, are 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 still at Hillsborough Castle. And ironically, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland used to have, you know, the bailiwick was that they, they had the, the power to give the gates back. Um, and then uh, things changed just before I went to the Northern Ireland office. So it's actually Theresa Villiers was the last person who had the, uh, the the power to give the gates back. And then it changed. And there's this outfit called Historic Royal Palaces, who are kind of like an arm's length body. They run places like Kensington Palace and so on. And uh, now they have the power. So um, sadly, the Secretary of State didn't have the power anymore. But actually, um, believe it or not, I mean, you can say whatever you like about Karen Bradley. And a lot of people have a lot of opinions on, on Karen, who I worked with just for a few weeks while she was kind of settling in as Secretary of State after James. But uh, she, she, is, she is very much of the opinion that the gate should be given back to Rich Hill. Uh, but uh, if some people sort of contact me and sort of said, well, actually, maybe we're not ready yet. And maybe the, the, the castle needs to be in maybe better shape or maybe need to wait a few years and see what happens with the castle or whatever. So. Uh, but I, I cannot help but feel aggrieved every time I'm in Hillsborough when there's actually a little plaque at the front of the front of the front of the gates, um, which which gives the story about the the uh, ancient monuments act, and they were taken to Hillsborough for safekeeping as well, which is highly highly suspect. Well, the person who actually knows loads about this, um, I actually did a, a little um, piece for uh, a program on UTV about this and interviewed Alan Turtle about it. Uh, another person who knows a lot is Mrs. Henderson. Aubrey Henderson knows a lot of stuff about it, and she was she was on the telly as oh, well. Yeah. And I went to Hillsborough and interviewed a few people about it and so on. And uh, I think I think one day it will happen. Yeah. The centenary as well is coming up in, in 20, 2036. So I hope by then we'd be ready to to receive the gates back and, and keep them in. I mean, they are beautiful. They are beautiful. But um, we shall see. But no, join the Facebook group. Uh, get, get behind the company. 15 years to get it done. That's it. <laughs> you can do it. Um, so Peter, just as we're, we're going to wrap up here, um, another few minutes. 
uh, really enjoying this. Thanks for thanks for your time and um, COVID. So if you just for a few moments, if you could just tell us maybe the highs and lows that you've found over the last sort of year or two, any learn even any learning that you've like that you've experienced. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot to learn from COVID. Actually, I mean, I, I've spent actually more than half the last year in Rich Hill. Um, with mainly with my parents, actually, I, I wrote the book in Ritual as well um, after after being sacked. But um, it's interesting because I think what we need to, what one of the real highs was actually realizing that. I mean, at the very start, the very start, my parents didn't want me to go out and didn't want me to go down to the shop and didn't want me to to buy groceries and stuff. And we had so many people who were just really kind. Um, people like Catherine McCready, for example, who a lot of people will know who and um and more like walker and people like that who brought stuff around took orders and things and uh, grocery orders and, and bought those and we're just so kind and so community spirited mm-hmm. and we're, we're just doing it for us we're doing it for a load of people um and i think that yet again you know community kind of coming together um w- was just lovely um i also spent a lot of time with my parents which was really nice i haven't really done that in a few years and i uh, went for a lot of walks with my dad which was good um and uh, had a lot of arguments with my mother, uh, but uh, most mostly she won and involved me apologising. But um, no, it's 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 a funny thing when I mean I'm, I'm 36 now, and it's it's it sort, of, sort of funny thing to kind of be be at home yeah. and you know just sort of have your sometimes you know having your meals being made and you know breakfast in bed sometimes and things like that, which was lovely. Um, the low point I think was probably just I think a lot of people felt very isolated, um, very sad, and um, I was lucky in that I I actually. You know, lock, lockdown has been okay for me. Um, I certainly miss friends, miss seeing people, and it's obviously very important to keep in touch with people. But um, and actually, it's interesting because there was one guy in London, actually a neighbour of mine, who my my housemate was out walking one day, and he just said, "I live across the road. I haven't really seen very many people in a few months. Can I walk with you?" Um, and she walked with him for a while, and I've actually started going walking, walking with him once a week. And like, he's perfectly this guy, and he's a really intelligent guy. And it turns out actually he worked in Downing Street um, years ago as a civil servant. And I, I didn't know that when I started working with him. And he just got all these amazing stories from back in the day, and I've kind of built up a bit of a friendship with him. And I think what we need to kind of remember when lockdown is over is all the good stuff, but also the lessons we've learned about should we be rushing around so much? Do we need to fill the day? with things all the time you know there's been a lot of sort of sitting and thinking on just a bit of time to do things and i know you know one of the really good things is that you know i cleared out basically every possession i had in, in rich Hill. i went through it all and decided what i wanted and what i didn't want and um you know watched a lot of homes under the hammer but um it, it's been i think there's a lot of good lessons and i, and I think a lot of people are I'll probably reevaluated, especially working from home and doing things like this and zooms and things it's 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 actually been very very positive for a lot of people and um, i think a lot of people are going to ask do i need to go into work five days a week in belfast or london or you know do i need to sit in traffic um are there other things i can do you know i think a lot of people have just a lot of time to think about their life and kind of re- reevaluate it and a lot of people haven't at any time at all because they're they're homeschooling yeah. or they're yeah. they've got caring responsibilities or you know, they, they, they want schools to come back or, or they want to, to relieve that pressure. So we, we can't forget how tough it's been for a lot of people, but lights at the end of the tunnel. My mum and dad have got their vaccines in the last 10 Good. days, which is fantastic. And um, I think we're, you know, we're going to come out of this and we're going to come out stronger. But thanks for that, Peter. That's really helpful. Um, yeah, I've got a couple of things. Paul, do you want to shoot away there? 
Yeah, yeah. I was just um, I was just thinking about uh, COVID's hit obviously politics and journalism. Probably that's your two prongs, really, isn't it? Um, and especially kind of around the trust stuff, and people are, you know, looking for information themselves and stuff, and and that's had sort of mixed results, I guess. But do you think there's probably good of this has caused a bit of a rethink on how journalism, even pol- politics, is, um, I guess, uh, especially kind of how it's, how it's um, presented to people, I guess. Is that, do you think there's going to be a bit of a rewrite with that? Yeah, and I think it's a really good question, Paul. And I think, I think there kind of has been already, actually. Um, I mean, it's really interesting, these kind of, we're not really used to press conferences where you see either, you know, Boris Johnson or, Arlene Foster and Michelle O'Neill kind of, you know, directly talking to you and answering these questions. And we're, we're not used to seeing that as often. Uh, and there's certainly more government in people's lives at this stage than, than there really ever has been in my life. You know, at one stage, they're actually, well, they still are, I suppose, but essentially saying, you can't leave your house and here's why, or a certain number of people. And I think that's been a really rude awakening for a lot of people. I think there are a lot of people in politics who aren't particularly comfortable with that either. Um, because they don't believe government should be telling people what to do to such an extent. And certainly Boris Johnson um, himself is someone who, you know, is on, on me as a conservative, you know, I want to give people as much freedom as possible. Um, I, don't, I don't want to dictate to people how they live their lives. Um, and it's, it's, it's been really interesting from that perspective. Also, with journalism, you know, the whole, the whole point of journalism, the only thing the BBC has over um, me going online and just talking um, is trust and is, is the trust in institutions and do we trust our government, do we trust the BBC, do we trust other, you know, a newspaper or whatever. And I think a lot of that has been chipped away for quite a long time um, and a lot of the institutions of the state and so on are, are, are less trusted. But it's really interesting, I think. The question, I suppose, from a political perspective is what will people remember? Because one thing that really struck me in politics is how little people remember as time goes on. You know, will I think the the three things people will remember from this period are Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle. Um, hundred thousand people died of COVID and the vaccines. And I think that's kind of it. Actually, when people look back on this politically big political events in the last wee while. So whilst for with during Brexit, for example, which I was, you know, was there for for really three and a half years of. Um, you know, things would happen, we'd lose a vote or Theresa May would, would kind of be under pressure or whatever. And people don't remember all that stuff. And, you know, you're sitting in your little bunker in, 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 in Westminster thinking, oh, we just lost a vote on, you know, the Third Amendment to the Withdrawal Agreement. That's a really bad thing. And then you think, well, actually, most people don't follow this with any degree, any degree that you do. And I find myself now as someone who consumes less news, a lot less news, than I did when I was in government because I had Sky News on in the in the in the, in the office every day. Um, you know, I, I I do listen to the news, I get breaking news alerts, I watch the ten o'clock news and things like that. But I just I don't follow it with the same detail. And I think, but I still follow in a lot more detail than a lot of people do. And I think a lot of it, a lot of politics and journalism is about the impression left rather than necessarily the facts. Um, and I think that's going to be really interesting when we come to the election in twenty twenty four. Um, and actually here in England, uh, we, we have local elections and mayoral elections in May and how parties do as a result of that is going to be really interesting as well. Yeah, I think there's, um, we get 
Robin Swan pop up every week. Um, and I think there's there seems to be a people are starting to appreciate. Well, people I've been speaking to are starting to appreciate probably the difficult position he's in. Um, and they're saying, well, you, you know, he's probably been the one who's had to say the difficult things and, you know, uh, trying to trying to explain to the population that we're, this is a crisis we're in and it's not going to be easy and so on. Um, and I think you're right, probably history will probably be the, you know, the judge of this, you know, looking back and going, you know. Well, he's a, he's a really interesting character, actually. A very good example of, um, I don't know him particularly well. I know him a bit. Uh, but, but you know, I think he's an example of someone with a lot of integrity who has, um, you know, he, he was leader of the Australian Party. He gave that up because he wanted a slightly quieter life and was given the sort of health ministry as a bit of a consolation prize. Um, and then suddenly he's thrust. Little did he know. Little did he know, <laughs> thrust in the limelight. Um, you know, he and his family have death threats. Um, you know, being um, a newspaper in Northern Ireland, which I thought was very irresponsible, uh, gave out basically his postcode and said, you know, a certain number of people have died or been vaccinated in his postcode, which I thought was was really uh, not okay. Um, and, you know, he doesn't have to do it. And a lot of people don't, don't kind of have to do the jobs they're doing. Uh, they choose to, and of course they are our elected leaders, and we absolutely have every right to ask them lots of difficult questions. But what I found was that you know governing is really difficult. It is really difficult, and you've got to make very very difficult decisions all the time. And Rishi Sunak is someone I worked with quite a lot. Um, he was a junior minister when I was in the Ministry of Housing. I know him pretty well. Um, you know he's going to make really really difficult decisions about where money is going in the, in the budget in a few weeks' time. You know should we be lifting universal credit by 20 pounds? Should we be giving money to homeless migrants? Should we be giving money to, um, you know, should we extend the furlough scheme, for example, um, on, on how do we pay all that money back? Like those are really, really difficult decisions and no matter what you do, people will criticize you. Um, and I think think what, because there's more government in people's lives, people are more involved and think about those decisions in a, in a more day-to-day way and they realize just how tricky it is. And I think we need to stop demonizing our politicians so much. I mean, look, some of them are dreadful people, there's no doubt about it, um, as there are dreadful people in basically every um, profession, journalism, the church, whatever. But um, I, I think we need to kind of give people a bit of a break sometimes and realize that politics in, in particular, uh, it, it is a lifestyle choice. I think people really have to want to do it. And yes, there are some people who are on the make, there are some people who want to make a load of money, there's some people who are just in it to, to get power and things like that. But the majority of people I met, and I, I mean this across all parties, I've actually struck up quite a good, quite a good few friendships with people in, in Labour and the Lib Dems over the years. It's generally people who want to make a difference, and I think I think Robin Swan and actually a lot of people in 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 politics in Northern Ireland have that. You know, that's their starting principle. It's all the other stuff that kind of gets in the way when you have silly arguments about flags. <laughs> that's really helpful, really good, Peter. Thanks. For I actually, actually started an argument about a flag once. Um, which is uh, I was quite quite proud of, um, but pride being the the operative term, in that um, the UK government flew you know the, the rainbow flag, the pride flag from every 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 government building, uh, except Stormont House in in Belfast. And I said, well, why why I have a lot of gay friends and know a lot of gay people. I said, well, why why aren't we why aren't we flying this? And James Brogan said, yeah, why aren't we flying this? And then we flew it, and lots of people were going, oh, this is dreadful, and this is the you know the dawn of the apocalypse because we're flying a flag. Uh, I'm quite quite proud of the the, the flag row I started. <laughs> it, won't, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have taken much, I don't think. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, 
just again, you were mentioning just a few more political figures you were mentioning. I, I read the book to the end thinking, did Peter finish this book before or after Dominic Cummings left Downing Street? Because I, 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 wanted, to, I wanted to know what, was, what your reaction was to, uh, to his. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting, actually, because um, I'm, I'm uh, really, I mean, I was quite kind about Dominic. Absolutely. And I, do, yeah. I do think he's, he's, he's a very, very, very smart guy. And he's not everybody's cup of tea, obviously, but sometimes in politics, you can't be everybody's best friend. But um, it's funny, actually, because d- the book came out on the 27th of October. Um, there was quite a lot of publicity and interviews and so on, and then I kind of kind of tailed off a little bit. Um, and there was sort of a week where I sort of thought, okay, well, this is you know publicity's over kind of thing. And then Lee Kane, who was the director of communications, he resigned, and then Dominic resigned the next day. And in a in a seven or eight day period, I think I did twenty five broadcast interviews and wrote five articles, including for like the Sunday Express and the Evening Standard and things like that, Belfast Telegraph. And um, yeah, it gave the book a huge lift. So is, all I can is. say is thanks for resigning, Dominic. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's all money in my pocket. Oh, so uh, not, not, not there's any money in writing a book, by the way. If you want to make your fortune, do not write a book. Um, it was quite funny, actually, because my, um, I had a researcher in the book, really, really good, uh, sixth former, actually. And uh, it was quite funny. One friend of mine who's very, very kind of woke in these sort of things, where, oh, I hope you're paying her the living wage and she's, you know, paying her properly and not exploiting her and all this kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah, she makes this amount of R for doing the research and whatever. And then I realized her R, she was getting paid a lot more than I was for writing the book. Like, there's, there's no way I would ever be paid as much as she was per hour if I didn't do that. But anyway, that's just a funny thing. I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Okay. But no, I'm, I'm very grateful for Dominic uh, to resign at that time. I think, you know, the writing, the writing was on the wall, really, since Barnard Castle. I mean, you know, you can't really recover from that particularly. And it's interesting, actually, for the political wonks out there who, who, who perhaps know these, some of these personalities. Um, there's a guy called Steve Hilton, who was, who was David Cameron's sort of Dominic Cummings-esque person. And then uh, for Theresa May, there was a guy called Nick Timothy, who was her chief of staff, who was uh, a very radical thinker. And um, these radical people never last that long. Uh, Steve Hilton, I think, lasted about two years, but you know, longer than two years. Nick Timothy lasted one year in Downing Street, and, and Dominic didn't last 18 months. So um, it's interesting, you know, one, one person can't change the whole system. But any time I worked with him, he was okay. I mean, he was scary, definitely, no doubt about it. But, and I wouldn't have crossed him. But, you know, if you're, if you're going to be, I mean, you, you never had the job title, but if you're going to be chief of staff or, or thereabouts, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, like, you've got to be a tough partner. You can't, you can't be a pushover. So I'm so aware of, like, we've scratched the surface on, on, uh, on, many of, on your political career and your journalism career. I know there's other stuff that you're interested in, but just for the last few moments, um, mainly as much as, because it's an area I'm passionate about, and I do know that it was part of your bio that you um, have been mentoring a teenager in the care system, and, and I'm passionate about that, but also at this Friday, um, is uh, Care Day, Care Day 2021. It's the sixth. It's the sixth uh, time that the the guys at the Voipick have uh, did this started this six years ago, and um, and so because it's Care Day coming up, I'd love for you just to just to speak about that. All I want to say uh, about that is, Neil, I've probably done less than one percent of the of the caring that you've done uh, for children in care, and you know it's brilliant that you and Judith are doing such a fantastic thing. And to anybody else out there who's thinking about fostering or adopting. Please do it because there are something like eighty thousand children in care in the UK, and um, 
you know, it, it was really interesting. The, the, the thing I do and the reason I, I'm interested is um, I mentor, as you say, a kid, he's 16. I can't give his name, unfortunately, but he's um, he's a really good kid. I've been hanging out with him for about three years. Um, we talk on the phone usually once every week or 10 days or so. Um, we uh, meet up usually once a month, although it's been a bit less, obviously, during COVID and lockdowns and all the rest of it, and just go and do something fun. And the idea, I'm what's called an independent visitor, which is is not a huge commitment at all. As I say, I do it once a month, and it's a phone call every 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 few days. Um, and he's just a really great guy who I just kind of hang out with. And I'm sort of another adult in his life who who provides a bit of consistency. And a lot of a lot of people in the care system, as you know, really just don't have any consistency. They'll have all sorts of different social workers, all sorts of different foster placement, um, and that kind of stability that I think. We, the two of us, actually, you and me, have been so, you know, lucky to have. It was really interesting, actually, when I went to university. It was only then, really, that I realised how many people, you know, had a complicated family situation for whatever reason. I'm not not saying for a second there aren't brilliant single parents out there or anything like that, but um, and everybody's different. But I just was so lucky, and I've been incredibly privileged to have those kind of anchors. And you realise that so many people don't. And what's re- what I find most interesting about the training. For the independent visitor stuff and it was pretty extensive and obviously you've got to go through all sorts of checks in terms of criminal records and all that kind of thing uh, for obvious reasons but um what i found really interesting was we got a lecture about child protection and stuff and why children are put in care and you know you hear all the time about things happening things in the news with kids and stuff who aren't in care and you, you think should be and think well it should be taken off the parents but the legal requirement is barely adequate. So if you have if you have parents who are giving, in, in by a legal definition, barely adequate care to children, well, their children can't be taken off them. So these eighty thousand kids who are in the care system fall below that. So they've all been through horrendous things. Sometimes things I can't even imagine, don't want to imagine. And if anybody can provide some sort of stability, some sort of understanding, um. And actually, just a bit of fun as well. I mean, a lot of a lot of kids in care have very serious lives. They're not all a crack. You know, they're sitting in meetings with adults talking about their future and, you know, as well as all the stuff that kids do in school and, and all the seriousness of that. And I think, you know, they, they often don't have an opportunity just to be children and just play and, and, and have fun and be carefree and take risks and learn things and all the kind of all the kind of stuff that you know everything sort of risk risk assessed was in uh, I, I, you know to 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 a fine point so i've been really privileged just i mean as i say it's, it's only three or four hours a month over the last three or four years but i've loved doing it um i think that maybe you know i you, i know you've adopted neil and that's, that's a massive step um and fostering is a massive step as well and you know you're just you're just your whole life has turned up by upside down by that and um, I think, you know, maybe you guys should do a podcast just with Neil on like how his life has been changed by all that. So huge admiration for, for anybody who does that. And I think there's so many people as well who work in the system, um, social workers and so on, and they have a really, really tough job. And, and I think there's a lot to be admired about what, a lot of what they do. They're, obviously, they're good and bad ones, but um, I think if you can, if a kid can get through the care system and, and have a good life, that's marvellous. And actually, I was doing some more training, again, safeguarding training, uh, last night for, for the placement I do, you've got to top it up every year. And there was one placement, um, my young guy will be leaving care in a couple of years, which is a whole other thing about what happens next and life skills and all the rest of it. And um, the woman from the charity was, was telling me that um, one of her placements 
they've kept in touch for years and years and years afterwards, even though they're not kind of formally together in this kind of independent visitor thing. And um, the, the, the independent visitor is now godmother to, to the children of, of the, the girl in care who was in care. So those, those kind of relationships can't exist. And I think people sort of immediately think kids in care, oh, they're all problem children. They, they've had problems, yeah. but they're not all problem children. Many of them are very, very intelligent, very interesting, interested uh, kids who just need, just need a bit of a chance, really. Yeah, and somehow it is, it's often the teenagers that get the, get the hardest rap they are given the hardest time. It's... Well, being a teenager is hard, yeah, yeah. you know, in, in general. And then you add all the other stuff. I mean, I was pretty miserable between the age of 12 and 15 or so. And, you know, I, I had about the most stable background you could come across. And then you add all the other stuff in. Yeah, and I really value, like, what you've said and what you're doing, Peter, because I, that level of consistency, it is... Uh, that like it is huge. It is so significant. But it's not just the consistency, it's somebody cheering them on. And that's the stuff that moves us. That's the stuff that, that like it almost gets me emotional. The fact that there's very there's some there's so many kids that don't simply have someone cheering them on or there to pick them up at the school gates or there to just champion what they're doing next. And so that level of consistency that you're talking about for this young man and the level of how and how you're cheering him on and championing him is so so significant as i say neil it's it's really a very very small proportion of what you and, and people who care on a more consistent basis do but i do i do enjoy it as well and you get a lot out of it and it's funny because he really doesn't read very much he's not not a big reader as many teenage boys are not readers i'm a huge reader but but he's not and uh i bought him a book well i bought him a book a few times and uh, it's actually you know, kind of a running joke that um anytime i buy him a present for christmas or whatever he doesn't want a book uh, but um, he cares for some chickens, and uh, at, at the at the place where he stays, there's some chickens he cares for, and looks after them. And um, he was told me all this stuff about chickens and care of chickens and how it all has to, and you know all the problems with lice. And you know he went into huge detail. And I said, oh, where, where did you learn all this? And said, well, in the book you gave me. He read a book. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done. Yeah, and, and again, it's just important to me, and I appreciate the chance just to highlight it. Um, this week, and, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you know Jude Hill at UTV. Yeah, Jude had done a report last night on um, this Friday being Care Day and how we're we're celebrating the life of care experienced children and young people. And uh, and her report highlighted that since the pandemic, there's been 178 extra kids have been added onto this already stretched care system, and. Uh, and so any opportunity that, that we have to, to highlight it, we'll take it. And so thanks for we've taken up so much of your time, which we're really grateful for. I always love to end with um, you offering us a recommendation of what you're, I didn't tell you this, but hopefully you have something that you're currently reading or watching or listening to that you could. Oh, goodness. Um, let me see. Reading or watching or listening? Anyone. Don't have to have any one of them. Okay. Let me think. Uh, put me on the spot. Um, I have really enjoyed recently. Um, actually, Rich Hill Link. If you if you yes. haven't listened to it already, um, Gordon's um, Gordon Adair's podcast. Oh, okay, absolutely brilliant. Um, it's called uh, Did the Right Man Hang? I think it's called Assume Nothing. Did the Right Man Hang? Okay, and I know a lot of people have been talking about it, but it's just this fascinating story about um, a woman who was found dead in the birches years ago like literally about 100 years ago 
and all the kind of generational kind of cover up and how it's all been. And he basically spent ages and ages and ages on it. And Gordon's a really, really good guy. He's a really good journalist as well. He's had a lot of um, challenges with his, with his own Parkinson's. And he, the, there's a six-part series, and I thought it was going to be six parts, and then there was a seventh part because there are all these different revelations. And I just finished listening to it there at the weekend, and I just cannot recommend it highly enough. I love all this, a lot of true crime stuff. Um, another one, uh, West Cork is another brilliant one. But uh, no, Gordon's, Gordon's played a blinder, so oh, that's good. keep it, keep it, keep it rich, Hill, and oh, uh, download that. Peter, thank you so much. Honestly, it's been a privilege to get the chance to chat to, to you, and thanks for giving up your time. And uh, well, thanks very much for for having me. It's been great, and uh, keep doing what you're doing because not only on the on the care front, but with this podcast as well. So it's a, it's a good idea. Thank you so much. Ordinary people was hosted by Neil Dawson. It was produced, edited, and engineered by Andrew Griffin and Paul Woods. Head over to ordinarypodcast.com for show notes, links, previous episodes, and all the ways you can contact the show. See you next time.